it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Always Time for True Crime with me, Julia. I'm sure we can all agree that in the past few years, we've seen so many cold cases being solved, thanks to genetic genealogy or just new technology. But like seriously, I feel like every week I'll see something on the news. It's awesome. But today I'm going to be telling you about not one, but five unsolved cases attributed to one man, a serial killer. Well, actually, some believe that there are even maybe 14 or 15 victims that are possibly connected, but only five that have actually been confirmed. We'll get into all of this, so don't worry. This serial killer preyed on the 1970s San Francisco's gay community. And 50 years later, he's never been caught. Because the victims were seen as minorities, and honestly just treated terribly, the crimes didn't make front-page news. Police didn't really even seem to care, until they realized a very weird pattern. Rumors began to form that this killer apparently sketched his victims on napkins before taking them to their violent deaths. And thus, the media dubbed him the doodler killer. On January 27, 1974, a call came into the San Francisco police station just before 1.30 a.m. The caller said, quote, I believe there might be a dead person on the beach. And, um, right across from Aloha Street, if you follow the street right down to the water. I was walking along there, and I saw somebody lying there. But I didn't want to get too close, because, you know, you don't know what could happen. End quote. When the dispatcher asked for the caller's name, he said, quote, Well, I don't think that's necessary. I just want to let somebody know. Maybe he needs help or something. I just felt it was my duty to report it. End quote. Police took down the location and told them they would have someone check it out, and the caller hung up. It's reported that investigators arrived at the scene at 1.57 a.m., and just as the caller had described, there was a man, who appeared to be deceased, lying on the beach, just at the edge of the water. As the waves came up to the shore, they flooded over part of the body, so investigators pulled the body up to the sand so that evidence wouldn't be compromised. The irony is that they were probably compromising evidence themselves when they did that, but... I guess they didn't know. The man lay on his back, and the San Francisco examiner reported that he had been stabbed 17 times in the chest, back, and stomach. There were a few injuries on his hands that the coroner later thought were defensive wounds, 
And it was also noted that there was only slight levels of rigor mortis when the body was found. So he had only been dead just a few hours. The victim was fully dressed and $21 was found in his pocket, while his Timex watch was still secured around his wrist. So that kind of ruled out the motive for robbery. Investigators believe that it was a rage killing. And interestingly, after the autopsy, a medical examiner said that it was possible that two knives had been used. As for who this was, police didn't know. He had no ID on him, but police estimated he was around 50. He had a heavier build, short and stocky, and was starting to bald. While they attempted to find out more, this victim was labeled John Doe number 7. Fortunately, it didn't take long for this victim to get their name back. Two days later, he was identified as 49-year-old Gerald Earl Cavanaugh. He would be known as the Doodler's quote-unquote first victim. And they say first with quotes because we don't really know. He was the first of the five victims that are attributed to the Doodler, but like I said, there may be others. At the time, there wasn't too much known about Gerald. He was unmarried and didn't have any family in the area. But in 2021, a crime reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle named Kevin Fagan began investigating the case again and really bringing it all back to the public's radar. He actually released a podcast series on the crimes and his whole journey about uncovering all of it. It's a 10-part series. Unfortunately, it is behind a paywall, which I understand kind of sucks. But if you really want like a huge deep dive into this case, I recommend it. Anyway, Kevin was able to uncover a bit about Gerald Kavanaugh and his family. Born in Montreal, Canada on March 2nd, 1923, he grew up in a very Catholic household. He reportedly left home at a young age to go to America and eventually ended up serving in the U.S. Army for a bit during the Second World War. After that, he got work as a furniture finisher, possibly in a mattress factory. He didn't really return home much, except once a year for his mother's birthday. But when she passed in 1967, that was it. Gerald didn't go back to Canada and really fell out of touch with his family. It was said that Gerald moved to San Francisco in the 1970s to embrace his homosexuality. Or, you know, I don't know if he really had a label on it, but he was sexually attracted to other men. That's known through others in the community, but he did keep this on the down low, especially from his family, as remember, he was raised very Catholic. San Francisco at that time was a place where the LGBTQ community could go and actually be themselves. It was the first city that really had a quote-unquote gay neighborhood, you know, gay bars and drag shows, honestly just where gay men and women could live and meet others and celebrate one another. The first gay pride parade was actually in 1972. The popular areas were the Castro District, the Polk Gulch area, Haight-Ashbury, and the Tenderloin. In fact, I read that there was a surge of soldiers flocking to the area around World War II after they were kicked out of the army because of their sexuality. So just like many others, Gerald moved to Haight-Ashbury and lived a quiet, private life. As far as we know, he hadn't come out to, like I said, his family or at work. His sexuality was something that he kept on the down low. But he did frequent the gay bars and the bathhouses. While San Fran was described as a gay mecca, it certainly wasn't a safe haven. 
Up until 1973, the American Psychiatric Association still thought of homosexuality as a mental disorder. In California specifically, homosexual activity wasn't legal until 1976. It's crazy. They were called terrible things, like pedophiles and sexual deviants. Police brutality was another issue. You could get arrested for holding hands or dancing with someone of the same sex. And as you can imagine, police didn't do this peacefully. They got violent with it, and a lot of the time when they dropped the guys off at their houses, they would out them to their roommates or their family. they try to shame them. Because a lot of people weren't out at that time. That part of their life was private. So not only did you get arrested, but then your family finds out, sometimes your wife, and then from there you lose your job, and etc. It's also not like police looked the other way. It's reported that some police would purposely go to these gay neighborhoods, actually looking to make arrests or beat someone up. Some would even pretend that they were gay so that when other men made a move on them, they could arrest them. Because remember, it wasn't illegal to be gay, only to act on it. Like, I honestly can't imagine caring that much about what other people do when it affects you in zero ways. But they did. And so gay people were kind of forced to create these secret, or maybe not so secret, meetup spots. If your sexuality was still private, these people didn't feel comfortable bringing a partner back to their house. So areas became unofficial hookup spots. Ocean Beach, where Gerald Cavanaugh's body was found, was apparently one of those spots. Police immediately thought that it was just a hookup gone wrong. When looking into Gerald, they learned that he had once been stopped on suspicion of having sex in the restrooms on that very beach. So it seemed like he was familiar with this hookup spot. Maybe even felt comfortable there. He had probably met a man, and maybe he was even the one to suggest Ocean Beach. There was very little effort to even find this killer. They did look into the phone call, wondering if maybe it had been the killer himself who had phoned in the tip. They traced the call to a payphone area on the beach, so while maybe it was the killer, it simply just could have been someone who didn't want to out himself. There were some unofficial sightings of Gerald in the hours before he was killed. Some said that they'd seen him at the bars in the Castro district, but nobody ever came forward to give an official witness statement. Most of these people probably wouldn't have wanted to admit that they were in the Castro area that night, and even if they did, they certainly weren't going to go tell police. After that, the case didn't get any attention. One, the police didn't care. And two, this was California in the 1970s. Behind Washington, this was like the serial killer capital. We're talking the Zodiac Killer, the Golden State Killer, the Hillside Stranglers. There were so many serial killers that you could hardly even keep up. And so just like countless other murders, Gerald's murder was set aside. His sister flew down from Canada to identify his body, but eventually he was buried in Coma, California. His family didn't even take his body back to Montreal. It's sad to think that he was buried alone, without his family. Nobody to put flowers on his grave. Hell, I don't even think he got a funeral. As Kevin Fagan said in his investigative podcast, it feels like his memory was just erased. The killer wouldn't strike again until five months later, when he lured Joseph J. Stevens to his death. 
Joseph J. Stevens was very different from the other victims. He was the only one who was really out. His sister Melissa said that from a very young age, Joe, as she called him, knew that he was gay. And she believes that if he were alive today, he would have actually been transgender. But back in the 1970s, he never labeled himself as that. You'll see online that sometimes people use she, her pronouns, but he himself always kept his male pronouns, and that's what his family uses, so I'm going to use he, him. One of six children, he was born in Texas, but raised in the Bay Area. He was known as Joe, but when he got to San Francisco, joined the community, and started performing, he became known as Jay. While Melissa still called him Joe because, you know, that was his given name, it seems like he more took on the name Jay. So I think I will call him that. He's the victim that we know most about because his sister has been really vocal about his legacy and advocating for gay rights and, of course, to find his killer. She said that whenever they played as a kid, he always wanted to play a girl. He named her Carolyn. That was his character, if you will. But when he was 20 or so, Jay tried to join the military, but was denied because of his sexuality. When his father found out, he was very angry about his son coming out and actually kicked him out of the house. Melissa explained in an interview with Kevin Fagan that she suspects her father knew all along that Jay was gay, but I guess when he wasn't allowed into the military because of it, that really made it, like, official, and it was just hard for her dad to accept. Their dad wasn't a bad person, Melissa says, but he had been raised in Texas, and this was new, and he obviously reacted very badly. After being kicked out of the house, Jay went to the city and started celebrating who he really was. He embraced every part of himself. He loved dressing up in drag and performing. He was a good singer and a dancer, and apparently super funny. So he would perform at all these gay bars, and really he was an inspiration to other gay men. Like, here was this guy who not only was out to the world, but wasn't afraid to be. After some time in San Fran, his sister joined him. Melissa, Jay, and another man named Steve banded together to create their own cabaret show calling themselves the Wonder Sisters. Jay would dress in drag, and the three of them would dance and sing to Judy Garland and the Andrews Sisters. And it was a hit. Jay was considered a star in the gay community, and there's no doubt that if he weren't killed, he would have gone on to get even bigger, I'm sure. In 1973, he was nominated for an award with the Kabuki Theater for Best Actor, Best Female Impersonator. And, of course, in true Jay fashion, he dressed up in drag for the event. Melissa recalled that before he left to go, his father gave him a corsage to match with his dress. Kind of as a way not only to show his support, but maybe, like, give an apology for being such an asshole before. Jay went on to win that award later that night. I'm so glad that he and his father were able to make amends before his death. On June 24th, 1974, Jay spent the evening at a cabaret show, this time in the audience. After the show, he was supposed to drive back home, but he never made it. The next morning, around 7am, a woman called to report a body found under a tree by Spreckles Lake in Golden Gate Park, less than 3 miles or 5 kilometers from Gerald's Cavanaugh's body. When investigators arrived, they noted that it was the body of a man, 
but the victim had no ID, and their pockets were empty. Just like Gerald, the body was riddled with stab wounds, five in total, three to the heart. About ten feet away, there was a huge puddle of blood, which suggested that Jay was stabbed there and then dragged over underneath the tree, kinda in the bushes. Jay had been beaten, and blood that was now dried had seeped from his mouth and nose. It was estimated that he was killed around midnight. Fingerprints were quick to identify this victim, as, like I said, 27-year-old Joseph J. Stevens. But once they had a name, even more questions emerged. Everyone who had seen Jay last had said that he left the cabaret bar to drive home. So, where was his car? It wasn't parked anywhere near Spreckles Lake. When they typed the license plate into their record, it turned out that Jay's car had been involved in an accident around 5am, two hours before his body was found. That morning, a man was seen acting suspicious while driving a blue Toyota, and when the police tried to pull him over for what they said was just a routine check, the car didn't stop. It turned into a high-speed police chase and ended with the blue Toyota crashing into a house. The driver, a young white male, estimated to be in his early 20s, with long blonde hair, got out of the car and fled the scene. This blue Toyota turned out to belong to Jay. Some of his belongings, like his wallet and some of his clothing, were found inside. But for whatever reason, police didn't consider the two events linked. I don't think they ever found the driver, but they theorized that Jay and his killer had driven to the park together. And once they parked, they went down to Spreckles Lake, which is another well-known spot for a late-night rendezvous. Police think the car was then stolen from the park in a totally unrelated incident. Melissa was horrified upon receiving the news about her brother. She and Jay had been excited to go to Boston next week to perform. It seemed almost unbelievable that he could be gone. Melissa and her other brother, William, were the ones to identify Jay's body. After Jay's murder, Melissa stopped performing altogether. She said that she never sings anymore and just completely abandoned any kind of hobbies like that. Singing will always be something that she did with her brother, Joe. Jay's obituary was printed in Drag Magazine at the time, and many reflected on how special he was to the community. Quote, Certainly one of the most loved performers by his peers in San Francisco. To work with him was a joy, and those of us who are privileged to know him will always remember his great ability to find humor in any situation, his genuine warmth and caring of everyone around him, and his total lack of temperament. In those brief 27 years, he brought a lot of love to the people around him. The world will go on turning, but it is now minus one beautiful, caring human being. In the few days after Jay's murder, police lost interest, if there, you know, even was any in the first place. They hadn't connected it to Gerald's murder, and they just treated it as, you know, not as important as other killings. Quote, just another gay guy, unquote, said Melissa. But ten days later, police were dealing with another murder. We're going to take a quick ad break, and we'll be back in just a minute. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. At 6.30 a.m. on July 7th, a woman reported finding a body on Ocean Beach. Yes, the same beach where Gerald Cavanaugh was found. It was literally in between the crime scenes from the first two victims. This man had been stabbed 15 times in the front and back. Actually, it was described more as hacking rather than stabbing. The coroner's note stated, quote, The deceased has four stab wounds in the posterior of his right shoulder, two stab wounds below the right nipple, a large gaping wound of the abdomen, and multiple gaping wounds about the neck in a manner which seemed as though the assailant had attempted to decapitate the deceased. There were no means of identification on the deceased person. End quote. It was also noted that the victim's pants were unzipped, though he was clothed, and his autopsy showed no signs of sexual assault or activity. He wore a number of gold rings and a gold bracelet, and had a tube of makeup on him, but other than that, his pockets were empty. The toxicology tests show that this man had a blood alcohol level of 0.33, which is almost at a fatal level. With no clues as to identity, police published a photo that the coroner had taken, of who they were now calling John Doe 82. They of course tried to clean him up for the photo, but I can imagine it still would have been pretty disturbing. Two weeks later, they got a name. A man named Booker Williams identified the victim as 31-year-old Klaus Christman. Klaus had come from Germany back in April, looking to start a better life in America. At the time of his murder, he had been staying with his friend Booker Williams and his wife. Klaus was born in Bavaria, Germany, and for a long time managed a bar that was said to attract both straight and gay crowds. He was married and had two children but a few months before his death, he had gone to California to start building a new life. He stayed with a friend and managed to get a job at a Michelin tire shop. While Klaus's wife and children had doubts that he was gay, he was said to have been a regular at several gay bars in the Tenderloin area. The night that he was killed, Klaus was last seen at a bar called Bojangles around 2am. His daughter said in 2021 that she wasn't so sure he was gay, 
but that he was just very accepting of homosexuality and just thought everyone was equal. So yeah, he ran a bar back home that attracted a gay crowd. And sure, he went to some gay bars in San Francisco, but she thinks that's just because he was a friendly guy who loved everyone. It's not really up to anyone to put a label on Klaus's sexuality, but at the time, the police did label him as, quote-unquote, another gay victim. Klaus's wife back in Germany was notified of his death with a telegram that simply read, quote, Sorry to tell you, Klaus has died. End quote. In the aftermath of his murder, police were left with questions. Like, about his BAC. Did he drink that much on his own? Did he drink with his killer? Did his killer maybe even force him to drink? Police didn't have any answers. They hadn't even connected the three murders. But the gay community had. Rumors circled around the Castro district and the Tenderloin that gay men were being stabbed. There were whispers about the victims being seen with a man shortly before their death. A man who would sketch their picture on a napkin in some kind of pickup scheme. Of course, this wasn't communicated at all to the investigators, and people didn't even know if this had any truth to it. It was just talk in the local bars. Then, the killing stopped. For almost a year, there were no more killings that matched this same stabbing pattern. Until May of 1975, when 32-year-old Frederick Kappen was killed after leaving the Bojangles nightclub, the same place where Klaus was last seen. Frederick Kappen was born and raised in Washington, in a very turbulent household. His parents were abusive drunks, and Frederick and his sister were bounced around to different foster homes during their childhood. And school wasn't much better. Frederick was apparently bullied by his peers. So as soon as he got old enough, he joined the Navy. There, he got medical training and started serving as a corpsman. In 1965, Frederick was serving in Vietnam, when he and some fellow soldiers were attacked by heavy fire. Frederick managed to drag four wounded soldiers to safety, risking his own life to crawl back towards them and wait for a helicopter to come save them. Later, Frederick was shot and shattered his leg, so he was flown back home to recover. Once home, he was awarded the Navy and Marine Corps Commendation Medal for Valor. Of course, Frederick's sexuality was kept a secret at this time, because, like I said, they would have kicked him out if they knew he was gay. After he recovered from his leg injury, Frederick went to San Francisco, hoping to enroll in art school. People say that he was a fantastic painter. In the meantime, he got a job as a trauma nurse and found an apartment in the Castro district. Shortly before his murder, Frederick's sister wanted to come visit him. She was going to bring her kids down. But Frederick was a bit riled by all the recent violence in the Castro district and told his sister that he didn't think it was very safe. He was actually planning to move back home to Washington, and then he could see her and the kids, he said. Unfortunately, Frederick never got the chance to move back to his home state. On May 11th, Frederick got dressed to go out to the bars. He grabbed his Picasso shirt and a blue corduroy jacket and headed out to the Polk Gulch area. The next day, his body was found on Ocean Beach. Again, super close to the others. I'll post a map so you guys can actually see how close all these crime scenes were to each other. Frederick had been stabbed 16 times. Most of the wounds were around his heart, but one had nicked his sternum and another the ribs. 
Kevin Fagan wrote for the San Francisco Chronicle that his heart was basically torn apart. His right lung was also collapsed. But Frederick had not gone down without a fight. Drag marks and blood patterns show that he was attacked about 20 feet away and then dragged over into the dunes. The coroner wrote, quote, There was dried blood smeared on the soles of both shoes, on the hands, about the face and upper torso, anterior, lateral, and posterior. End quote. Just like the previous victim, Klaus Christman, Frederick's pants were also unzipped. Yet again, an autopsy showed no signs of sexual assault or activity. Frederick was identified by fingerprints, and word began to spread that there was a fourth victim. The killer was back. Fortunately, the fourth time is the charm for the San Francisco police, and Frederick's murder actually got police to start linking the cases together. In the past, different homicide detectives had worked the different murders, just whoever happened to be on shift that day. Now, the San Francisco police assigned two officers to the whole string of killings. These officers were Rotea Guilford and Earl Sanders. Guilford and Sanders were known as the Soul Brothers. Guilford was San Francisco's first black homicide detective, and Sanders would later become their first black police chief. They faced prejudices of their own, right? Like with racism. But I think they learned a lot about how to talk to people and how to respect minorities. They were just trustworthy guys. It was said that they could get witnesses to talk, whereas people wouldn't have even given other cops the time of day. It was Guilford who realized that witnesses probably weren't coming forward with tips because they didn't want to be outed by police, and that a bigger issue, the lack of trust with police, was at play here. Guilford and Sanders were known to de-escalate situations with words instead of violence, and that also really helped the communities respect them more. Some cops at that time wanted the public to fear them, like wanted everyone to know who was in charge. But Guilford and Sanders were more level-headed than that. They just wanted to solve crimes, but they also knew that the best way to get the inside scoop was to connect with the community. So he formed relationships with not only the Black community, but the LGBTQ community. They really were the perfect guys for this case. Guilford and Sanders started out by going to the bars that the victims were last seen at, especially Bojangles, as both Klaus Christman and Frederick Kappen were there the night of their murder. What a wild thought, going to the place where the victims were last seen. It doesn't sound like a big deal, but back then, none of the officers had thought to do that. And it paid off. They were able to chat with some regulars who not only knew the victims, but could fill in the investigators when it came to all these rumors. This was the first time that the cops heard about the doodler, the man who drew his victims on cocktail napkins. Then he would walk up to his target and show them the drawing. It was like a way of flirting. It was unique, and it was kind of romantic. I mean, to be honest, if this happened to me, I would like literally call the police. But I'm paranoid, and men are terrifying. But in the 1970s, though, I can see how that could have been cute. After flirting a bit, the victim and the killer would then leave the bar, probably to go find somewhere private. Unfortunately, while this was a big help, nobody could really describe what this doodler guy looked like. Guilford and Sanders barely even had time to look into their new theory, 
before they were presented with another victim. On June 4th, a body of an older man was found in Lincoln Park, two miles north of Ocean Beach. This body had been there for a while, though. Flies and maggots covered the body, and the coroner estimated that the victim had probably been dead for around 10 days. Just like the others, this man had been savagely attacked, but most of his knife wounds were to his neck. His pants were also unzipped, but this time his underwear was gone. Had the killer taken it? Had this man started to undress and maybe in a panic only had time to put his pants back on? Or maybe he was just going commando, 1970s. The investigators didn't know. The victim was named John Doe 81 until a few days later when he was identified as 66-year-old Harold Goldberg. Born in Iakabee, Sweden, Harold had become a sailor at 16 years old and left everything he knew behind. He worked on ships for a while, traveling around the world, before settling in the States in the mid-1950s. In the years leading up to his murder, Harold bounced around boarding houses and hotels, never really having a fixed address. When Guilford and Sanders went to his last known boarding house, they found his room. Apparently under the mattress was a huge wad of cash, like a quarter of a million dollars. So why was he living in a hotel? Something that was also said was that during the autopsy, the medical examiner found that Harold had a very serious liver disease, and it was estimated that his liver would have killed him within the next few years. I don't know, I know I hear true crime stuff all day, but that's just kind of eerie to me, isn't it? Just one month later, the killer was back again, looking for his next victim. In July of 1975, he picked out a man in a restaurant called The Truck Stop. It was 2am, and the bars on the street were pretty much closed, but this was like a late-night diner where people would drunkenly go at the end of the night. The killer went up to the man, who is only identified as the diplomat, so he went up to the diplomat and struck up a conversation. The killer told him that he was an art student and dreamed of being a cartoonist. Then he showed him something that he had drawn on his napkin. It wasn't a sketch of the diplomat. This time, it was a drawing of some animals. Still charming nonetheless, and soon the diplomat invited the killer back to his apartment. The killer accepted, which, like, he's accelerating. As far as we know, he hadn't gone back to a victim's apartment before. He also apparently asked the diplomat if he had any cocaine, but I'm not sure what his answer was. But the two men went back to the diplomat's apartment, and the killer asked if he could use the washroom. After being in there for, like, 20 or 30 minutes, the diplomat was like, dude, come on, hurry up, and was knocking on the door. Maybe he was doing cocaine in there, I don't know, because this is the only time that cocaine is mentioned. The other victims didn't have any cocaine or any drugs, actually, in their systems, and Klaus Christman was the only one who was drunk, so it doesn't seem like drugs usually played a role. But for some reason that night, the killer was in the bathroom for a really long time maybe just trying to get the courage to kill again. Also, is it bad that when I heard this, I immediately thought of Ross from Friends, like when he locks himself in that girl's bathroom because of his leather pants shrinking? But no, unfortunately, this wasn't just a case of leather pants. When the killer came out of the bathroom, the diplomat reportedly had his back turned. Then the killer said, quote, You're all the same. I've had other people I've done this to before, and I enjoy this. Your anguish and pain and everything else is something I enjoy. End quote. 
before stabbing the diplomat in the back. As the two struggled, the killer also tried to stab him in the stomach, but was unsuccessful. Because as he delivered his last stab wound to the diplomat's back, the blade on the knife snapped off, lodged in his body. Somehow, despite being stabbed six times, the diplomat continued to fight back, shoving the killer into a wall. This clearly spooked him, and he took off running, leaving the diplomat bleeding in his apartment. Incredibly, the diplomat was able to walk to the hospital, where he was then treated for his wounds and made a full recovery. Finally, police had a survivor. But it wasn't that easy. They heard through the grapevine that someone in the gay community had been attacked in a similar fashion, but nobody would say who. When they finally did track down the diplomat, he was uneasy about talking to police. He was well-respected in his career, he was closeted, and he just couldn't risk people finding out that he was gay. However, he finally relented and agreed to give them a report, in which he said that he remembered the killer had said, you guys are all the same. But the you guys part was particularly hostile. According to the diplomat, it was obvious to him that the killer meant gay men by you people. Secondly, he was able to give a physical description. The diplomat described his attacker as a young black male, like maybe 19 or 20, between 5 foot 10 and 6 feet tall, and very thin. He also noted that he was wearing a Navy-style watch. The diplomat was very clear, though, that he didn't want his name publicized, and he wouldn't be taking any further steps. As far as he was concerned, this was now in the past. It had never happened. Less than two weeks later, the doodler was back at the diplomat's apartment building, because he found another victim who lived in the same building. Talk about ballsy. Not only has he escalated to now going to their houses, but he's returning to the scene of one of his failed crimes. I mean, I suspect the diplomat was still in the hospital at this point, but I don't know, what if the doorman recognized him, or a neighbor? We don't know who this victim is either, but it's said that he was a, quote, local public figure. Maybe in the gay community, or maybe just even like a government official, political figure. We can only speculate. This time, the killer tied up his victim probably saying it was for sex, but in reality, it was probably so he couldn't get away. He had learned his lesson with the diplomat when he was shoved up against the wall. He wanted it so that the victim couldn't fight back. Once again, he brought out a knife and used the same line, you people are all the same. But before he could stab his victim, this man started screaming, loud, something that the doodler clearly hadn't counted on. It's so weird because he's ballsy, but he also seems to get spooked very easily. Like, he returns to the same building. He previously attacked his victims in public places. Yet, if anything doesn't go as planned, he freaks out. As soon as this guy started screaming, neighbors actually started to yell down the hallway. Like, what's going on down there? And that kind of stuff. And so, again, the doodler fled. I can imagine now that his confidence has to be shaken. Two victims had gotten away within two weeks. Survivors have now seen his face. This second survivor, the public figure, was also able to give a description, and that matched everything else that was being said. 
The doodler took a few months off after this, we think. But he finally got his confidence back in October of that year, 1975. And he really got his confidence back. He wanted to kill someone high profile. I wonder if he might have tried to do this with the previous victim, the public figure. This attack, though, was on a well-known entertainer. Again, his name isn't given. But according to Guilford and Sanders, they said that it was a household name. The entertainer was originally from L.A., but had come to San Francisco to visit and experience the gay community. There's a lot of speculation on who this was, like on Reddit or Web Sleuths. I'm not going to mention any of the theories now. If this man didn't want his name released, let's respect that. Anyway, it's reported that the entertainer, as he's referred to, had gone back to a hotel with this man, who we think is the doodler. But as they were settling into their room, taking off their coats and everything, a knife fell out of the doodler's pocket. The entertainer said that was it for him, like he wasn't going to stay and find out, and he took off. The entertainer recalled that this man did fit the description of what the diplomat in the public figure had said, so he thinks it's the doodler. Okay guys, let's take one last ad break, and we'll be right back. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. With three survivors, the police thought they had enough to release a composite sketch. As always, you can find the composite on my website or on my social media, which is always in the show notes. Police also said that they felt that this killer was most likely gay himself, and was probably struggling with his sexuality. He killed gay men because it was like killing the part of himself that he despised. While he's attracted to men, he probably at the same time also hates them, and thinks that if he can kill these men, then that kind of takes off the like so-called guilt for having those sexual desires. They felt that in his personal life, this man was probably quiet and serious. He probably came from a middle to upper class family and had an education, or as the doodler apparently had told the diplomat, was getting one. Remember, he said he was an art student. After the sketch was released, several men were arrested as possible suspects. 
if you were seen drawing something on a napkin or a notepad in a gay bar, boom, arrested. One guy was arrested for having a butcher knife and just like a pad of sketches. And while that may look promising, remember this is 1975. If you go to a restaurant alone, maybe looking to meet someone or you're waiting for your friend, you don't have your phone to play on. You can't scroll through Instagram. So bringing a little sketch pad maybe wouldn't have been uncommon. Second was a lot of gay people felt unsafe from what they called gay bashers, which is honestly like too nice a name. Let's just call it what it is. Homophobic assholes. And so maybe people did carry a knife on them for protection. The survivors, the diplomat, the public figure, and the entertainer, were asked to come in and look at a police lineup, but none of them had any interest in trying to help solve this case. Not out of selfishness, but again because of their secret sexuality. And maybe they're scared that the doodler will come back for them. I mean, he knows where two of the survivors live. These survivors really just wanted to forget about it and move on. These arrests didn't really pan out anyway, but one that was kind of taken seriously happened in November of 1975, about one month after the sketch was released. Officer James Andre Bowles was on patrol that night when he noticed a man walking down Castro Street. But he caught Bowles' eye because it seemed like this guy had something in his pocket, in the pocket of his pea coat, and he was like very obviously hiding it. He kind of had his hand over it and was like trying to tuck it away. As Officer Bowles got a closer look, he said that this man looked a lot like the composite sketch. And so he went over to the man and told him to face the wall so that he could pat him down. How wild is that? Like, just because you have something in your pocket, this officer runs over and pats you down? Like, what if it was just, like, an extra pair of gloves or something? (laughs) Fortunately, in this situation, the officer's suspicions were correct. This sketchy character was actually armed. While frisking him, Officer Bowles found a sawed-off baseball bat tucked in his coat and a knife in his pocket. The man was then taken to the station, and when he was booked, he was made to hand over all of his belongings, like his wallet or whatever else was in his pockets. And that's when investigators found a pawn shop slip for a watch that had belonged to Frederick Kappen. I don't know how they knew that the watch was his, Maybe it had his initials on it or something. But police said that they did identify it as Kappen's. This seemed like a slam dunk, but it really wasn't. That watch had been reported missing by Kappen weeks before he was killed. Someone had broken into Kappen's apartment and stole some valuables, that watch among them. And then Kappen had filed a police report and mentioned everything that was stolen. Looking back, that's probably why he felt so unsafe and wanted to move back to Washington. When they looked into this man's past, the guy they had just arrested, they saw that he had served prison time for burglary and robbery. He had just gotten in a lot of trouble with the law. So police wondered if maybe he had been the one to break into Kappen's apartment. But they also had to consider that he had gotten the watch from somebody else. Maybe someone owed him money, gave him the watch instead. Maybe he stole the watch from the man who stole the watch from Kappen. It wasn't unusual for those kinds of unsavory characters to trade belongings, investigators said. Like, they had a little thieves trading ring. In the end, they couldn't link this man to the murders at all. 
He apparently had no artistic abilities, and his whereabouts were corroborated for some of the murders. So it looked like that watch was just a huge coincidence. Nevertheless, it didn't deter Guilford and Sanders, and soon enough they had another avenue to explore. Actually, shortly before the watch guy was arrested, a call had come into the station to report a tip. A woman on the other line had said that she thinks she knew who the killer was. She didn't give a name, but she asked them to call her back. But because investigators were so busy with other suspects, they hadn't got around to it. Until 10 days later when the woman called again. She was upset that nobody had ever called her for an interview and was adamant that this guy was weird and sketchy. She gave them a name and a license plate number. Police immediately started looking into this guy, but before they even got too far, they received another phone call from a different woman. A receptionist at a psychiatric clinic said that she felt that one of their patients was the doodler killer. This patient had apparently confessed to three of the murders on Ocean Beach. When police got in touch with the psychiatrist who had treated this patient, he backed up the receptionist's story. Not only did this patient fit the sketch composite, but he had apparently confessed to wrestling with self-hate for having homosexual feelings. Then he had said some quote-unquote incriminating things that connected him to the Ocean Beach murders. Unfortunately, we don't know what those incriminating things were. The psychiatrist then explained that he had cured this patient and that now the patient was actually happily dating a woman. You can't see, but my eyes are rolling so far back into my head that they might just stay there. Police did get in contact with the suspect, who was willing to chat with them, but he, of course, denied the murders and said that he was cured now and happy, blah, blah, blah. He was said to live in the Bay Area, but worked in the San Francisco Corps. When they showed his picture to the survivors, they refused to say either way whether it was him or not. But it was said that other members of the gay community had told police that they had seen him frequent the bars in the Castro District. Investigators felt that they couldn't move forward just based off a mentally ill man saying some incriminating things. And so after a while, they were forced to stop pursuing the suspect. In the police files from that time, it just says, Dr. Priest equals psych. Highland Hospital. Now, from that, current investigators gathered that this was a psychiatrist named Dr. Priest, and he worked at the Highland Hospital in Oakland. But they haven't been able to locate him. Dr. Priest probably wasn't even his name. Like, I'm wondering if maybe he was a doctor and a priest, and maybe that's why he thought he could quote-unquote cure homosexuality. It's even been theorized that maybe he did conversion therapy. So that was also looked into. Because, I mean, what does cure mean to people who actually believe that sexuality is something to be cured? Is it cured through just good old-fashioned therapy, like just talking? Or maybe even as far as chemical castration? Like, I know it's sickening, but it happened. As of 2021, investigators can't find anyone who fits the scenario of the psychiatrist. But the best they could find was a man named Dr. Preece, P-R-E-E-C-E, who worked at the Highland Hospital. So it's possible that this name was maybe just misheard, and someone from the original investigation wrote down priest instead of priest. However, Dr. Preece passed away in 2005, so if he was the psychiatrist in question, that's now a dead end.
both Guilford and Sanders have also since passed away. So if they knew anything more that hadn't been written in the police files, they took it to their grave. There's also been a lot of files that have just been lost or destroyed. Remember, everything back then was on paper. There were no computerized records. So the current investigators only have a few documents to work with. Of course, they do have this suspect's name, who today is actually just referred to as a person of interest. This man is still alive, but he's never admitted to police that he was the killer, and he won't give any information about his time in a psychiatric clinic. Oh, and actually, this man has since embraced his sexuality and is fully living out as a gay man. He told investigators this in 2018. So, not shockingly, it seems as though you cannot be cured, because it's not something to be cured. I'm really glad that this man has finally accepted who he is, though, and he should celebrate that. Unless, of course, this guy actually is the doodler, in which case he can go fuck himself. But present-day police say that they don't even consider this man a suspect, just a casual person of interest. Upon recently taking another look into the case, investigators have now linked another victim to the doodler. The unofficial sixth victim. 53-year-old Warren Andrews was attacked on April 27, 1975. This would have been after the killer had supposedly taken, like, nine months off, and just two weeks before he killed Frederick Cappen. Warren Andrews was found on an overlook in Lincoln Park close to where another victim, Harold Goldberg, was found just over a month later. Just like the others, this was a popular hookup spot. He had been severely beaten with a rock and a tree branch, but miraculously was still clinging to life. As he was rushed to the hospital, police collected evidence from the scene, including a bloody handkerchief. Unfortunately, though, Warren died in hospital after never waking up from a coma. His murder wasn't connected to the others because he wasn't stabbed. The doodler always stabbed his victims. But recently, police thought of a different scenario. What if Warren and his killer went to the Overlook to hook up? It's a romantic spot, known to the gay community. But when the killer pulled out a knife, Warren fought back. They theorized that the knife was knocked out of the doodler's hand and possibly fell down off the overview. Now, it's just two men fighting with their bare hands. So what does the killer do? He finds whatever he can nearby to finish the job. The rock and the tree branch. But they also wondered why leave Warren alive? The doodler wouldn't have done that. Well, it's possible that maybe he just thought he was dead. I mean, he was beaten into a coma, so he must have been in pretty bad shape. That he probably appeared deceased. Or perhaps the doodler thought that maybe he heard someone coming. I'd have to imagine that a struggle like that must have made some noise. Warren probably screamed. Maybe the doodler was alarmed by his plan going awry and he just took off. He may have even run down the hill to go and find his knife first. When investigators interviewed Warren's sister, she said that she believed her brother was gay, although he had never come out to her. Other friends of his, though, said there was absolutely no doubt he was attracted to men. But Warren was a respected lawyer who had gone to Harvard, and probably would have lost his entire career if his secret came out. 
Police are currently looking to find evidence in these cases, such as the bloodied handkerchief. Blood samples from the crime scenes were taken at the time, and while it wasn't possible to conduct any DNA testing back then, investigators are now hoping that the killer may have nicked himself while stabbing this victim. It's possible that his blood is mixed in with the victim's samples, and with today's technology, they may be able to isolate a DNA profile. But before we go, let's look into another case that many want to be investigated as connected to the doodler. I mentioned that some people believe that he's responsible for as many as 15 murders. That seems like something you'll kind of see in older articles. Unfortunately, in the 1970s, there were several cases of gay men being murdered, and people just assumed that it was all one person. But it's more likely that there were probably just more sick people out there committing hate crimes, and that not all of these are the doodler. A lot of these cases were victims who died of strangulation. Some had their bodies dismembered. There's really nothing else to connect them to the doodler besides their sexuality. Some of these victims have also now been attributed to Randy Kraft, another Californian serial killer who targeted men. But another murder that I actually feel could be linked to the doodler, though, is the murder of George Gilbert. 32-year-old George Gilbert was stabbed eight times in the abdomen on September 29, 1975. He was also found bound, but his autopsy showed no signs of sexual assault or activity. His friends, though, said that George was into BDSM and liked to be tied up and that sort of stuff, so it's likely that he was tied up willingly. Like some of the other victims, George had a very well-respected job. He was a lawyer. But those close to him knew that he had sort of like a double life, frequenting the gay bars at night. Oh, and guess where he lived? The same apartment complex as the diplomat and the local public figure. The two survivors where the doodler had gone back to their apartment complex in the summer of 1975. This was in September. Another gay man stabbed in the same apartment building. Honestly, I'm not sure why this one wasn't originally linked. It seems like to me this is definitely connected, but that's just me. Police are now looking into other unsolved homicides from the time to see if any fit the doodler's pattern, so we may know soon if more victims are connected, just like Warren Andrews. So what happened to the doodler killer? It seems as though he stopped killing in 1975, and if that's true, why? Some believe that he moved away and started another murder spree. There were a number of murders in Louisiana in the late 70s and early 80s that some think is the work of the doodler. In fact, doodler sightings have been reported all across America. In LA, New York, Texas. People have called to say that a man doodling in a bar matches the composite sketch. It doesn't really seem that promising to me, but still, many think that he's just traveling around continuing to kill. Another assumption is that he died. A popular belief is that he died in the AIDS pandemic. Which, like, yeah, I get a lot of gay men unfortunately did die in the 1980s AIDS pandemic, but, like, I still think that's a bit of a reach. Like, he could have just been hit by a bus. I feel like specifically assuming that AIDS was his cause of death is a reaching theory. Then, of course, there is the idea that maybe he accepts who he is now, and he's happily living somewhere. In 2019, investigators released an $100,000 reward for information leading to finding the doodler killer, 
and even more recently in 2023, it was raised to $250,000. As Michael Scott says, that's a lot of guacamole. As I mentioned, police are trying to get the killer's DNA from crime scene evidence, if it even exists. Last I heard, they hadn't even found it yet. So DNA is a possibility, but even so, without it, I still think it can be solved. If the killer was around 20 at the time, he'd be in his late 60s now. It's not too late for justice. The doodler told victims that he was a commercial art student with dreams of becoming a cartoonist. He was believed to live in the Bay Area, but not actually in the San Francisco core. Because most of his victims were killed on the weekends, it's believed that the killer would just come into the city to visit. And kill, obviously. So he may have had a regular Monday to Friday life. A new sketch has also been released that shows what the killer may look like today, based on the original composite sketch. I'll post that too, so please go check it out. If you think you have any information regarding these homicides and attacks, you are urged to contact the Cold Case Investigators or the San Francisco, or the San Francisco Police Department. There's like six different numbers that you can call, so I'm just going to put those down in the show notes. Thank you guys again for tuning into another episode of Always Time for True Crime. I hope that I'll be back with an episode on this case soon, once they solve it. I really hope so. If you enjoyed this episode, you can leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get, or wherever you listen, to be honest. And in the meantime, follow me on social media, links are in the show notes. So stay safe out there, guys, and I'll be back soon with another episode. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.